0: Last Sunday, we began our study in the book of Jude, a letter that ends up being a sermon, but also a book which in our time has been rejected by some, simply neglected by others, because of the severity of the tone of this book. Today, we'll begin by looking at one more reason why Jude is neglected, and that is his mention of eternal punishment. C.S. Lewis called hell that cruel or that crude monosyllable as he defended the biblical doctrine of hell. It's found in verse 7, which we looked at last week, but didn't look at it in detail, and then verse number 13. Verse 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexually Im- sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And then in verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. You will note that hell is not mentioned by name, if you wish, in either place. In 1990, a Gallup poll uh, saw that uh, reported that 78% of Americans thought that they had a good chance of going to heaven, while only 4% thought they had a good chance of going to hell. Um, I, I think this is an accurate reflection of the fact that nobody wants to go to hell, however you imagine hell to be. Until the 19th century, almost all Christian theologians, and I would add Christians, taught and believed in the reality of eternal torment in hell. Eternal punishment was firmly asserted in official creeds and confessions of the churches. But since 1800, this has begun to change. Um, And in many churches, the doctrine has been widely abandoned. So, briefly here at the beginning, perhaps not as brief as you might want, I want to look at the matter of hell. First of all, what does the Bible say about hell? Where, where is hell in God's plan? Well, hell is described as the final state. That is to say, when a person dies now, they go to an intermediate state, and then at the time of the resurrection, they will stand at the judgment seat and then they will either be brought in with the people of God or they will be cast into hell. Um, in 2 Peter 2.9, um, Peter writes, The Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. He's holding them for the day of judgment. That's their intermediate state while continuing their punishment. What we are told is that hell follows Christ's second coming. In John, chapter 5, verse 28, it speaks of the general resurrection. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So when a person dies now in this life, they don't go to hell. They go to this intermediate state, which we're not told very much about, until the day of the resurrection and then the final day of judgment. Um, Matthew records this in Matthew, chapter 25, when God will separate the believers from the unbelievers. And then in Revelation chapter 20, anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. A big question, and one I think a lot of people get wrong, is who is in control in hell? You may recall the famous line from John Milton's Paradise Lost, where Satan says, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. That is to say, Satan would rather be a leader even if it's in hell, than to be a servant in heaven. Um, And one theologian, in fact, has written, hell is where Satan rules, where his complete fury is unleashed. This is simply not correct. Hell is where God alone rules, and his fury is unleashed against Satan, his angels, and unbelievers. Uh, Jesus banishes in Matthew 25, evildoers into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Revelation 20, uh, the devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. But perhaps one of the passages that is most misunderstood is in Matthew, or Luke 12. It's also in Matthew, but I'll read from Luke 12. I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and can do no more. I will, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Who is it that has power to throw you into hell? Not Satan. It is God. God is the Lord God Almighty. He alone has that power. He is the judge, and he alone has power over hell. I would also argue, we can argue about this later, that God is also present in hell. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Okay? Um, Paul does say that unbelievers will be shut out from the presence of God, but I think what he means is they will be shut out from God's grace and God's blessing, that God is present there, but he is present in his holiness and his wrath. Um, what is hell like? Well, we're given, I would say, a number of descriptions. Some are vague, vaguer than others. We are told that it is darkness and separation. So here in Jude, verse number 13, um, hell is described as blackest darkness. Uh, it's also tied with fire. In verse number seven, the punishment of eternal fire. In Matthew, seven times we hear Jesus speaking of those being cast out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And weeping may be seen as crying in sorrow, gnashing of teeth as extreme suffering and remorse, but I would argue it could also be ongoing rebellion, that the weeping is that of anger against God. Then it is a place of punishment. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1. All this is evidence of that God's judgment is right. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Because God is just, his judgment is right. It is right for him to punish those who do not obey the gospel. And lastly, hell is described as death and destruction, or the second death. That is to say, if someone dies in this life and then they're in the intermediate state, they are resurrected on the day of resurrection when Jesus returns, they stand before the judgment seat, and if they are condemned to hell, then they die again. It is the second death. But how long does hell last? And this seems to be the real issue, Um, the place of eternal punishment. Um, By the way, Jesus says this in Matthew 25, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It is interesting that in that verse, the word for eternal, for eternal punishment, is the same word that is used for eternal life, eternal are there degrees of punishment in hell? We are not told directly, but you know, we wonder, uh, will someone like Hitler, for example, will he have greater punishment than someone who has never heard the gospel? One has only to read Dante to see an expression of this, that there are different levels, different circles of hell. Um, Jesus said, woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida, I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So that would seem to indicate that there are degrees, but it's not something we can be dogmatic about. Who will be in hell? We are told that Satan, the devil, evil or fallen angels, and unbelievers, those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It is interesting that most of the passages We read in the New Testament Do not focus so much on Satan and his angels The demons, but on human beings And who are these Human beings? In Revelation 21, the cowardly, the unbelieving The vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral Those who practice magic arts The idolaters and all liars Their place Will be in the fiery lake of burning Sulphur I'm sure that we can find ourselves in at least one of these categories, which is bad news, but the gospel, the good news, is that Christ has come to bring salvation. He has come to rescue us from hell. But let's be honest. Believing in hell is quite difficult. It is quite difficult. Let me read to you what one writer said. Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such things is more nearly like Satan than God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Surely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no fiend. Torturing people without end is not what our God does. Another who I would identify with more closely theologically is, he says, emotionally I find the concept intolerable. How can a God of infinite grace send those who are made in his image to a place of eternal punishment? Many Christians, many of God's people struggle in this area. I think we should consider what Augustine wrote 15 centuries ago. Now, the reason why eternal punishment appears harsh and unjust to human sensibilities is that in this feeble condition of those sensibilities under their condition of mortality, man lacks the sensibility of the highest and purest wisdom, the sense which should enable him to feel the gravity of the wickedness and the first act of disobedience. Yeah, there is something lacking in us which really fails to appreciate the gravity of sin. And so we may, in fact, conclude intellectually or emotionally that the idea of eternal punishment is unjust and unacceptable. I think it's more than the fact that the church wants to be seen as more civil and more polite. We don't want to be those terrible people who believe in hell. We don't want to offend people who think this doctrine is out of date. But I think there are certain things we need to be reminded of. The holiness and majesty of God. I would argue that we live in a time in which the culture and the church seems to have little sense of these aspects of God, that he is holy and majestic. He's seen more as a buddy, someone we can have a conversation with. When we think of prayer... What do we think of prayer? Do we see it as, in fact, something in which there is this casual conversation or something that we take seriously? You'll notice that in the Bible, whenever God appears to people, we read something like this. I fell at his feet as though dead. Instead, we are deadly casual in our prayers and in our approach to God. We want his gifts, his grace, but we ignore his judgment. Another thing we need to consider is that human beings and their choices have significance. As human beings, we want to be significant. We want to be remembered, but we just don't want to be ignored. Well, hell is in fact a monument to the significance of human choices and human actions. God judges us because as human beings, we are significant and our choices really do matter. If they didn't, then why would God judge us? Just sort of ollie ollie income free, you know, don't worry about it, no biggie. But lastly, we should consider the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the extent that we diminish the doctrine of hell, we diminish the death of Christ, considering that he was separated from the Father and he endured the wrath of God on the cross. One of the things that helps me in this area I'm rem- I reminded of a phase I went through some decades ago when um, I grew tired of prayers asking for blessing that people ask God to bless them bless this, bless that and it just like, seemed like bless, bless, bless and um, I was talking to someone about this and he, his, his answer was something to the effect well, it's either blessing or cursing. Um, and no one in their right mind wants to be cursed by God, but there is no neutral ground. It's like blessing, cursing, and eh, whatever you know in between. Um, it really, really affected my thinking because I think, as many people, I had too much of this demilitarized, this neutral zone in which, yeah, you're not, you know, God, not blessing you, but he's not cursing you either. Just Sort of letting you go your own way. And that's simply not the way that it is. So it is with the matter of hell. Let's not miss the forest for the trees looking at all these different aspects of hell. Um, We need to recognize that there are two possibilities. We are in Christ or we are alienated from Christ. We will be in heaven or we will be in hell. We believe or we do not believe. I'm convinced that what Jude wrote in verse 7 and in verse 13 was not an attempt to explain or to focus on hell. I want to say he mentions it in passing, but that makes it far too casual. Um, What he wants his readers to know is that the false teachers will certainly be judged and punished. That's his point. It's not to create a doctrine of hell or to elaborate on it, but to say they will, in fact, be punished, just as, as we saw last week, God destroyed the Israelites, the angels who had positions of authority were bound with everlasting chains, and God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he will do this to the false teachers as well. Um, And how did Jude reach this conclusion? Well, he selected, as I just mentioned, three groups, Jude does a lot of threes, by the way, in this book. Those who had advantages. The Israelites who were redeemed from slavery, the angels who had positions of authority, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding areas that are described as being like the Garden of Eden. These three groups had privileges, but they rebelled against God and God judged them. In the same way, these false teachers have turned against the truth, and God will, in fact, judge them. We should not think that because they were teachers, because they had high positions, that they would be given a pass. No, they will suffer just as the Israelites did, as the angels did, and as Sodom and Gomorrah did. In verse 4, we saw last week, Jude tells us about these men. They are godless men. They have changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. God will forgive whatever I do. And then lastly, they deny Jesus Christ, not necessarily by their teaching, but by their actions. Today, we begin at verse number 8, in which Jude tells us more about the false teachers. Look, if you would read verses 8 through 11. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what they do not understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them! They have gone the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. The connection at the beginning of verse number 8 is in the very same way. So he's still continuing in this sermon as he's preaching against the false teachers. He's given us historical examples. He's going to give us more in verse number 11. These men, in fact, will be judged. He tells us three things about these Teachers, in verse number eight, these dreamers, they pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and they slander celestial beings. And the focus is that their conduct is rather daring, if you wish. They seem rather courageous in a bad way in, the, in what they do. These dreamers, a dreamer is one who is dreaming, and the word that Jude uses here is in their dreaming." So they are living in a dream-like state. They are, in a sense, always dreaming. And in this state of being a dreamer, they pollute their own bodies. Uh, Now Jude, obviously, is not speaking of literal dreaming. But rather they live in a subjective world of their own creation. They are daydreaming, if you wish. They've created this fantasy of reality. And that's where they live. They certainly don't live in the world as God created it. Uh, One is reminded of what we read in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Imagination is, in fact, a wonderful gift from God, the ability to imagine new things, what we would call new things, to think in new ways. But it can also be dangerous. And it can lead one to be out of touch with reality, to live in an imaginary world as opposed to the real world. Dare I say, virtual world? A virtual reality? Jude says these false teachers are living in this false reality. And because of that, they do the things they do, and they don't seem to be bothered by it. It, It's not a matter of conscience. their conscience don't bother, they don't think that God, in fact, will judge them for what they are doing. They live in a new reality, a dreamlike state. And one of the reasons they do that is because there's no immediate punishment. You know, it's not like a child who does something and you know, reaches for something and, and their hand gets smacked right away. These false teachers have continued for a while, and nothing has happened to them, so they imagine that, in fact, they are doing what is right. They imagine to themselves that God must not care, or he may, in fact, approve of what they are saying, because he has not indicated in any way that he disapproves of what they are doing. So what they do is, they do it daringly, they do it boldly and fearlessly. And what do they do? In the very same way, they pollute their own bodies. The body is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but their bodies are defiled and soiled by their actions. The word "defile," by the way, in Greek means to dye or to stain to another color. Um, They are using their bodies for a purpose other than what God intended. We certainly see the examples of this with the Israelites and with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it is clear um, that Judas is concerned about the sexual immorality of these men. It will come up again later in this epistle. They pollute their own bodies. They reject authority. And again, we have the examples from verses 5 through 7. One of the sins of Israel is that they rejected the authority of God through his servant Moses and decided they wanted to go their own way. The false teachers that Jude is writing about have also rejected authority. And what authority is that? Well, obviously the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call him Lord. He is our Lord. That means we obey him. We do what he says. Um, Verse number four, they denied Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord, Jude tells us. They also reject the authority of scripture. And at this point, the scripture they have is the Old Testament, God has revealed himself to his people, and they reject that that authority. And they reject the authority of the church, because these false teachers are not in line with what the church has been teaching. They've gone off on their own. So they reject the authority of Jesus, of Scripture, and the church. That is, by nature, they reject authority. If If the church seeks to correct them, they reject the correction. If the scriptures teach something contrary to what they teach, they reject that as well. And if Jesus is our Lord, they reject his authority as well. The third thing they do is they slander celestial beings. And this is a lot more difficult uh, because we don't have an example in verses 5, 6, and 7. Verse number 9 seems to provide the example in contrast um, it's not really clear what they were doing, what they were preaching, what, I mean, what kind of sermon, what kind of preaching could you have in which you say bad things about angels? Um, The word, by the way, that is used in Greek is blasphomism, which from which we get blaspheme. Um, We don't know what they were saying. I think Jude's readers did because the false teachers had come in and were teaching their false doctrine. Um, it may, in fact, be, and if this is a case, we need to read that they were speaking um, harshly against Satan himself and against the fallen angels. Um, we might find that hard. To, what's wrong with saying bad things about the devil? He is, after all, the devil. Well, we'll see in verse number nine that, in fact, that is not what we are to do. So the contrast, verse number nine, if you look at verse number nine, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So it would seem that the false teachers are saying nasty things about Satan and the fallen angels. And Jude says, listen, When Moses died, and we're told about this in Deuteronomy 34, he went up to Mount Nebo, Pisgah, to look out over uh, the promised land that he could not enter because of his sin. God buried him. No one knows where Moses died and where he was buried. And apparently, it is at this point that there is a contention between Satan and who wants to take the body of Moses, and Michael, who is the archangel, and they are contending, they are fighting over the body of Moses. Michael is an archangel. Michael means who is like God. He's the only uh, of two angels. He's one of two angels mentioned by name in the Bible. The other is Gabriel. Um, Michael is mentioned in the Old Testament, we saw in our study in the book of Daniel, and he's mentioned in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 12. The title archangel is only used here and in 1st Thessalonians 4.16. And the only, the only creature that is called an archangel is, in fact, Michael. Uh, people have said Gabriel is, but we're not told that. Only Michael is called an archangel. So he is, in a sense, like a head angel. He's sort of at the top of the pyramid, if you wish, of uh, arrangement. Uh, this is who Michael is. And the example that we have of Michael, who in truth could have said some pretty nasty things about the devil, accuse him of great evil, did not dare bring a slanderous accusation. You are the one who rebelled against God. You rebelled against the Creator. You brought a third of the angels of heaven down with you. Michael doesn't do this. Was he afraid to do so? I, I really don't think so. Um, I don't think, well, I think it was a moral consideration. Instead of Michael saying, I'm going to say nasty things about you, he said, the Lord rebuke you. God is the final judge. God rebuke you and not Michael himself. That means that Michael refused to be his judge. Rather, he, he recognized, as we often fail to do, that judgment is God's business. He is the one true judge. I think there's much to learn here. We need to be careful not to presume to take God's place and to judge others or to slander other people. God, God has set up authorities in the state and the church. The authority comes from him and not from themselves. Michael had authority not in himself but from God. And he said to Satan, Satan, The Lord rebuke you. Rather than taking it upon himself. Verse number 10. Their conduct is characterized. Yet these men speak abusively. Against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand. By instinct like unreasoning animals. They are the very things. These are the very things that destroy them. These men are arrogant. And they are senseless in their conduct. We don't have threes here we only have two Um, they speak abusively against what things they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals these are the very things that destroy them what can Jude possibly mean here well I think there's a contrast between the things that they understood and the things that they did not understand or between the things that they knew and the things that they did not know And it's not just between having heard something and not, but between what is understood, what is comprehended, and what is not. And what did they not understand or know? Apparently this has to do with the angelic beings. It seems that these particular false teachers are really into cursing out angels, fallen angels, you know, saying blasphemous things against them. It's not a question of intelligence, but the fact is they don't have the Spirit of God. They're doing this in their own will, if you wish, in their own power. So they regard all spiritual beings with scorn and contempt. And again, the word blaspheme is used here in Greek. Again, I would say this seems quite strange to me because um, who would go around bad-mouthing demons or angels for that matter? But if we understand that these men reject authority, then we begin to understand that they have set themselves above the angels, above demons, to say we are in positions of authority and we can judge you. They reject God's authority. What did they not know? This perhaps is more interesting. Again, it's not intellectual knowledge, but it's actions based on who they are. They are driven by instinct. Okay? They're driven by instinct. Instead of thinking things through, they simply do whatever it is that they want to do. They seem to lack all self-control. They are rather like animals. And here I want to be careful. I'm not in a position to judge them. I'm not calling them names. But rather making a comparison between human beings and animals. Animals are governed by instinct. They can be trained to do certain things. But it's quite different from being thinking creatures. Jude sees these men as dreamers, and they are driven by their instincts, not reasoning things out. This is what God says. Rather, they simply do what it is that they want to do. And the consequences are these are the very things that destroy them, that living in such a way brings death. It brings destruction. And I don't think that he's thinking about hell, verse 7 or verse 13. but i think in their lives in this life they are already planting the seeds of destruction of their own well-being by surrendering to their instincts they bring ruin on themselves one writer writes about this slow suicide is the result of such beastliness they act like animals they will suffer the consequences And then our study today closes with verse number 11, the parallels to this conduct that we find uh, in the Old Testament. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Woe to them. This is a word that Jesus uses in the Gospels. This is the only place we find it in the epistles. We will find it in the book of Revelation when you read through there. Um, What does Jude mean? He's like, may they get what they deserve. No, I don't think that's what Jude intends. Um, We have the expression, woe is me. So I think Jude is saying, alas for them, it is too bad for them, their situation is tragic. They're going down the road of ruin. Why? Because they've gone the way of Cain the way of Balaam, the way of Korah. These are all figures, these three figures from the Old Testament. And just to remind you of the story, the way of Cain. um, Cain was the first human being born into this world. Adam and Eve were created. Cain is the first born into this world. But he also became the first murderer. In some sense, he is a daring man to do what no one had ever done before. A man consumed by jealousy, hatred, self-centeredness, desires, Uh, he gave in to sin and he murdered his brother. Um, Herman Hesse has written about this in a different way where he sees Cain as the superman, the uberman, because he was willing to do what no one else had done. He had the strength to do that. The second character is Balaam. Balaam is a fascinating character in the Old Testament, Numbers 22, 23, and 24, he is a prophet who is hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel as Israel is getting ready to come into the promised land. God appeared to him not once, but more than once, um, and told him not to do what the king of Moab wanted him to do. And it reached the point where, you may remember the story, Balaam is riding on his donkey and the donkey stops and he beats the donkey and uh, the donkey crushes his leg against the wall. And Balaam keeps beating him, and finally the donkey turns around to him and says, Why do you keep, I've always been a good donkey, why are you beating me? Um, And then God opened his eyes to see there was in fact an angel in the road that the donkey could see that Balaam could not. So Balaam blesses Israel instead of cursing them, but then he tells Moab, the Moabites to seduce Israel um, into sexual immorality by the worship of their gods. Why did Balaam do this? Money. Covetous, he was an evil man. He was the guil- guilty of the greatest sin of all. He taught others how to sin. He did not curse Israel, but he taught others how to seduce Israel. Um, Revelation 2.14, Balaam, who taught Balak, that's the king of Moab, to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols, by committing sexual immorality the third character mentioned is Korah, he was a leader of a rebellion while Israel was still in the wilderness, he was of the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, and he challenged the authority of Moses and of Aaron both they were brothers, they were both of the tribe of Levi, Moses was the political leader, Aaron was the spiritual leader he was the high priest um Korah said, listen, we're, we're, you, don't, you don't get to be in charge anymore. We want to do our own thing. To make a long story short, God judged him, and the ground opened up and swallowed up uh, Korah uh, for his rebellion. It is only with Korah that we see immediate judgment. He rebelled against God's authority in Moses, and God killed him and his family. Uh, with Cain... We're told that he was made to wander. God put a mark on him, but God did not immediately kill him for what he had done. And also with Balaam. Balaam gets to go back home. He is eventually killed, by the way, by the tribe of uh, Reubenites as they are settling the land. But we have two cases in which people have done things that are daring, that are bold, but are really, really wrong. And it seems that God doesn't do anything. Um, Korah yes immediate judgment but not the other two I think Jude wants us to see here that the false teachers may live long lives they may live long prosperous lives it doesn't mean that they will not in fact be judged so Cain who was angry against his brother who was jealous killed him Balaam was in it for the money, he was greedy, he was covetous, he wanted the money from the king of Moab, but it is Korah who rejects God's authority. And Jude wants his readers, he wants us to know that false teachers will be judged. We may not see it in our lifetime, but they will be judged. So, here in closing, what does Jude tell us about the false teachers? They are dreamers living in a dreamlike state. They reject authority, and they say what they think. As I was preparing this, I would like, isn't this what it means to be an American? Aren't we dreamers? Don't we reject authority? You're not the boss of me. Don't we, in fact, say what we think? We need to be careful We are to live in the world as it is And by the grace of God to make changes Not simply in our minds But to make real changes We are to accept the reality of authority Recognize that God is the final authority The Lord reigns And we are to be careful In how we think or speak of others Even when we are speaking the truth One can imagine that the first readers of this letter might have been quite confused. These guys have snuck into the churches. The New Testament is not yet complete. These people are claiming authority that they in fact don't have. And they seem to be doing well. So maybe they're right. Maybe God approves of them. On more than one occasion, I have been told by someone that so-and-so is going to die very soon because God will not allow a person who is living that way to continue to live. And in fact, it doesn't happen. It's like Cain. It's like Balaam. Cain murders someone and he gets to live. As far as we know, he lived a long, long life. Balaam was responsible for apostasy coming on the people of God, and he lived at least for a couple more years until the Reubenites killed him. We should not be thrown. We should not make a judgment based on the fact that someone continues to live and thrive and seemingly do well. We need to ask, do they in fact reject authority? And if they do, that should be a pretty good indication to us that what they are teaching is wrong. But Jude's not finished. We are for today, but we will come back to this, the Lord willing, next Sunday as he continues in this sermon to teach these people about these false teachers that God, in fact, will judge them. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our tendency as human beings to go by what we can see and make judgments by what we see or hear so that when someone, like in the early church, comes along and teaches false doctrine, one would have an expectation that they would, like Ananias and Sapphira, be struck dead. And yet these false teachers continued and seemingly thrived. We do not understand. We struggle with the notion of eternal punishment. We rest in the fact that you are the Lord God Almighty, that you reign, that you are a righteous judge. Help us to remember that, in fact, there will be a final judgment. It is only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that will spare us. But there will be judgment. And there are consequences to human actions. Help us to think carefully on these things, because what we read of the false teachers might very well be seen as a description of what it means to be an American to be a dreamer, to reject authority, to say whatever it is we think. Instead of living in your world as you created it, accepting your authority and the authority that you've given to those who rule, and that we are to be rather careful in our speech. We are told that we will have to give an account for every idle word that we say. Should give us pause As harsh as this book is We are grateful for it And ask that your spirit Would teach us from it We thank you for this Lord's Day The beginning of a new week A week in which we are told We'll get more rain For which we are grateful We pray that you would Guide our steps Help us to remember that you are with us every step of the way. We thank you for your love, supremely shown in the Lord Jesus. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.